With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 56th episode of my show. I use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues. And I also want to provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and also to help you to better protect your privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, and whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And also, please subscribe to my show on the voice. Voice America Business Channel website. So then you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. I appreciate so much all of you worldwide who tune in. And I see in my weekly listener stats, which are based on general locations of those coming through the Voice America website. I see I had many new listeners this week from a couple of new areas, Bonaire and St. Estatius. Thank you to all my listeners in the now 62 countries throughout the world. I truly do appreciate you. And if any of you are interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my show, please also get in touch. And if you need help with information security or privacy, let me know that too. And keep all of your feedback and questions coming in. My March Privacy Professor Tips message was published on February 27th. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please go ahead and sign up for them. I've been providing them for free since 2007, and I do this in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues, and also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees. Now, you can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now, for my tip for this week. This comes from my March tips. Now, in late February 2019, so just last month, it was widely reported that a Stanford University student found and reported a huge security and privacy flaw in the university's student records system. Now, the student was concerned that the social security numbers of other students may have been accessible to anyone with just basic knowledge of web development. So the student, whose name was not reported, spoke up and notified the school about the flaw that he or she discovered. 
This is an excellent example of see something, say something done right. So if you see a security or privacy error or vulnerability or other situation that puts privacy, personal data, or or really any type of information or systems at risk, report it. Report it to the business or organization that's offering it. So my tip is this. If you visit a website or if you're using an app or if you're using any other type of software or device and you notice something that looks like a security or privacy problem or breach, document what you see. Describe it. Do a screenshot, make a short video of it, and then take what you just documented and any other information and get it to the organization where you found that problem. Most business and organization websites have an email, phone number, and mailing address for you to use to get in touch with them, and you'll find it usually in their terms of use. Um, And also often the privacy notices. And if you want to find those links, those links are often found at the very bottom of the homepage. Not too convenient, I know. But to get to the bottom really quickly, just press your page down key or button and you can get down there and find that information really fast. So March is Women's History Month. It's a month to commemorate and encourage the study and observance and really the celebration of the vital role of women in American history. And I believe this should be done worldwide as well, even if it's not an international observance in all countries. I was so happy to see that the Secure World Expo, where I've been doing keynotes, sessions, and training classes since around 2006, maybe 2005, they chose to have as their theme for this year, the life of the brilliant cryptography pioneer Elizabeth Smith Friedman. And today then, we're going to be discussing Ms. Friedman and her contributions and a few thoughts about cryptography as well. We're also going to be speaking then a little bit towards the end about the sessions and classes at the 17 Secure World Expos that are occurring throughout this year. I was really happy to participate last year in three of the events, giving keynotes and also facilitating the advisory council breakfast events at each one that I attended. And last year I went to Atlanta Dallas and Seattle. Now, this year, the first one I will be attending is in the greater Kansas City, Kansas area on May 7th and May 8th. This year, I've developed a full day class, especially for Secure World Expo, and it's titled Privacy Impact Assessments and Privacy Frameworks effective tools to identify and mitigate security and privacy risks. Then I'm going to be giving the lunch keynote on the next day on May 8th at the conference. So I hope to see and meet a whole lot of you there. And I always greatly enjoy 
attending these events. And since I grew up in a very rural area of north-central Missouri, around a one-hour drive north of Kansas City, and I got my bachelor's degrees at the University of Central Missouri, which is also around a one-hour drive, but it's from the southeast of Kansas City, that area has always held really special appeal and memories for me. You know, I think about it, and I remember going on road trips during college. We'd drive over to the Country Club Plaza and sit outside on the banks of Brush Creek listening to live bands in the summers. I still vividly remember listening to Chuck Mangione and play there live. Uh, Herbie Mann was another one, and Anita Baker, and so many other great jazz acts, and also I'm also a lifelong fan of the Kansas City Royals baseball team and the Kansas City Chiefs football team. And for my international listeners, that's American football. So it's it's just so exciting to see the Chiefs excelling this past year, especially under the leadership of the brilliant quarterback Patrick Mahomes. If any of you are listening, look up his highlights tapes. You'll be just amazed. Those sidearm passes are absolutely spectacular. So I'm I'm looking forward to going back to Kansas City, a place of really fond memories in May for the Secure World event. And I hope to see many of you there. Now today, though, the focus is on Elizabeth Smith Friedman. I wonder how many of you listening have heard of her. Well, too few, I'm, I'm sure, but I'm happy to raise awareness of her achievements today, especially during Women's History Month. And I've got the perfect person to speak with about Ms. Friedman. Today, I'm welcoming to the show Bruce Sussman, who is an Emmy-winning journalist and former TV meteorologist. And Bruce travels the country interviewing InfoSec leaders, privacy leaders and researchers at Secure World's 17 regional conferences around North America. You can also find Bruce moderating panel discussions or delivering his keynote on how to improve the way you communicate to advance your organizational objectives. Bruce, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Well, thank you, Rebecca. It is fantastic to be with you. And I should tell uh, your listeners, and by the way, congratulations on having something like 60,000 listeners around the world now. It's just unbelievable how quickly you've done that. But it doesn't surprise me because every time I've seen you speak and give a keynote presentation, you always uh, kind of blow my mind a little bit in some of the uh, facts that you share. (laughs) Well, I'm happy to hear that. Thank you so much. I well, love that. Well, that's a double-edged sword. Let me tell you something, because it's a little scary sometimes what you present. In fact, I, I wrote an article um, for our website, secureworldexpo.com, and it, uh, one of the articles was called 10 Privacy Quotes Everyone Should Read. And one of the quotes came from you, and I, I want to share it with your audience uh, because sure. this is one that I, I, I um, saw you say in person um, as you were delivering the keynote. keynote. You said this. Consider this. If you have 100 employees and they each use an average of two smart devices within your business processing environment, you've just created at least 
another 200 data storage areas. Add in all the third parties that are getting copies of that data and that number exponentially increases. And when you said that, it just it just blows my mind. How much data are we creating individually? You know, how much of our data goes through the corporate network? How much of that data goes to third parties and where does it go from there? And I remember you saying one time, the truth is we don't actually know where it all goes. And that's that's a mind-blowing thought, isn't it? Oh, well, I'm glad. I'm just so happy that that uh, that made that impact because it blew my mind, too. And I just sit here and start thinking about it. It's like, wow, it, there's just so much data out there. And then I think, well, how are we going to protect that data? <laughs> and so that's why, you know, women such as Elizabeth Friedman, who, you know, is dealing with cryptography. I, as you know, too, Bruce, I'm a huge fan of encryption and all types of cryptography. So I think it's just so spectacular that uh, we're that you know, Secure World is focusing on Elizabeth Friedman this year. But before we get into her, you really amaze me with your career, too, because you came into information security and privacy from such a different background in many ways. Um, were you surprised by anything that you learned when you came into this field from meteorology? <laughs> yes, uh, there were definitely some surprises along the way. Um, it, it's kind of funny. Uh, it was it was accidental, really. Um, but I, uh, after a stop at Gartner, working with CISOs, um, the Chief Information Security Officers, um, I fell in love with cybersecurity and all of the struggles and the challenges. And what I loved about it is there's so much to learn, and it's constant. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of funny because I found some similarities uh, and I continue to find these as I interview experts traveling for Secure World now um, between meteorology and cybersecurity. For example, um, in information security, uh, it's all about the data, right? It's about the state of the environment, details from threat intelligence, uh, trends in attacks, uh, the volume of attacks on a on computer network. Um, I think about like the state of the fish report, which came out a few weeks ago. It's all about um, the latest phishing attack trends, those emails you get. Um, And it included the roles within the organization that are most likely to be attacked. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's key data there. Anyway, you base, you take all these inputs and you put it in to your cybersecurity program. And from that, you create all these outputs that help guide you where your next steps should be, right? And it's mm-hmm. very similar in putting together a forecast uh, yeah. for snowstorms, you know, for the, the risk of tornadoes or an incoming hurricane or typhoon. I mean, think about the things that that, um, that I used. You know, there's, there's information from weather balloons that are launched in countries around the world twice a day at the same exact time that give a snapshot of the atmosphere right now. That information is transmitted to supercomputers. There are satellites that are able to monitor and do data analysis like never before. That information ends up into supercomputers, and the output ends up being a forecast model that helps guide whether warn people about certain things or maybe there's no threat and everything's great you know hunky-dory so that's one way that I think it's similar and I hope you'll forgive me 
um, Rebecca, but I do have a, a little weather analogy that I love. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> and this, this came from Jason who is the former CISO of U.S. Bank. He's now the CISO of Charles Schwab. And I interviewed him at Secure World Chicago. And he told me uh, during our interview, he said, and this is, these are his words now, on planet cybersecurity, we have new weather every single quarter, but the old weather never goes away. And I love that quote because he's basically saying new threats keep emerging, but you still have to guard against the older, more well-known threats just adding new weather on planet cybersecurity. So I thought that was a good one. Oh, that is great. I, I mean, I love that. And, you know, as you were describing it, too, before, what I thought of immediately as as being similar is the fact that in information security, we're always being asked, what's the probability of being breached? What's the, mm-hmm. you know, what's the, the probability that there's going to be an incident? And all we can do is use the data we have available, right? But you can't tell the future for sure, 100%, kind of like with uh, <laughs> forecasting the cat, you know, the weather, you, you never are 100% able, right? Well, that's right. And hopefully, Rebecca, I love that. That's so true about the probabilities. Hopefully, you're a little more accurate in your uh, risk and privacy assessment <laughs> forecast than I am in weather, <laughs> or than I was. <laughs> yes, there, there's I'm always guessing, I'm guessing you are. <laughs> Uh, uh, well, we hope. We yes, try. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> and actually, um, there's one other thing that, that was an interesting similarity to me as I switched uh, fields here. Mm-hmm. Um, in meteorology, what I found is uh, back in my weather center when I worked for a, a TV station in Portland, Oregon, for many years I was on, on the air there. And, you know, most people at, at the TV station, including people who worked in the news department, people very closely with honestly did not understand the tools that I used and what they could or couldn't do and how they impacted things mm-hmm. and I and it's not because they weren't smart right they had their own tools and their own priorities and I think this is very similar to both privacy and security leaders and teams when you think about it the rest of the organization isn't really sure what is it you do over there and what, what, I mean, I know we've got an IT security team. I know we've got a chief privacy officer. What exactly do they do? I mean, they, they keep us safe, right? But, but what is that? Yeah. And I think that's why it's so key to communicate about what we do in two ways. One is in plain English and dropping the lingo when we're trying to get people on board, right? The entire organization uh, or other leaders in the business on board with our mission. But I think the other thing is... Um, that we need to communicate why it's relevant to the organization and to the individual employees involved. And if we don't, we, we kind of lose them in that discussion. So those are a couple things that, that have come to mind for me anyway. Oh, definitely. Well, and that's something I've noticed too throughout the Secure World Expo events that there is so much sharing of all those different um, types of methods between the different practitioners. And I'm wondering, can you provide maybe just a quick overview for a lot of our listeners who aren't familiar with Secure World? Uh, you know, what are those events and, and kind of where are they held? Sure. No, that's a great question. And uh, Secure World uh, is an 18-year-old company. Uh, we, we essentially two divisions. I call one the mothership, and that is uh, our events division. Um, and it's the largest. It was the first part of Secure World, and 
those on the events teams, uh, basically they create regional cybersecurity communities and then conferences for leaders and professionals who work in the field of cybersecurity and privacy, compliance, risk, these kinds of things. Um, and those are, you know, very inside from a couple hundred um, people who are part of that community and attend the conference each year to more than a thousand. So that gives you kind of the, the size range. And what I love about that, that size is that in community by community, you actually are building networks of people that work in your region that you can rely on. Um, so that's, that's the cybersecurity conference side of it. And then on my side, I help lead the media division, um, and this is where we have all kinds of digital content, um, not only uh, actual news stories on our, on our website around cybersecurity risk and privacy and what the governments are doing on various things um, relating to those you know, policy changes, uh, but also uh, podcasts and webinars um, and certain courses that are online, like the one you mentioned you're going to be leading um, in Kansas City. So it's, it's about education, right, and being a resource uh, for those in InfoSec. So that's kind of an overview of who Secure World is, and um, it's exciting. Year 18. Yes. Well, and then, you know, the themes that have been um, established for each year, That's that's been kind of going on, I don't know how many years now, but how did you, you choose the theme? Uh, how did choosing a theme for each of the conferences get started? That's a great question as well, and the answer is it started in 2011. That was the first year that we we had a theme, and we realized that we had an opportunity to help shine a light on something from the past that could inform the future. You know, you know how that what's that saying? You know, if we don't remember the past, we're doomed to repeat it or something like that. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I think we've all lived that out personally, right? A time or two mm-hmm. in our lives. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have. <laughs> but but the idea is there are lessons that kind of get forgotten, especially in this day of modern technology. We're all about the future, and obviously, primarily the conference is looking to the future. However, why not take some of those nuggets um, from the past and see how they could inform what we're doing now? And so, in 2011, the first thing, by the way, if you're curious about that, it was called the ciphers of the Civil War, and it's fascinating to me. Even I had to look up what was our first theme again um, because I was curious about that. And uh, it was because the telegraph was increasing the number of messages that could be sent during a particular war, but the wires themselves were not secure. And so at any point between the sender and receiver, an enemy agent could tap into the line and receive the message without detection. Ah. Does that sound like a modern day thing? or what <laughs> oh exactly and talk about a, a single point of failure too i would say if you yes. could just bring the line down completely and then there goes your whole communication path right Somebody yeah there's a couple it. things exactly <laughs> so, uh, i mean that's the amazing thing to me is that kind of thought the mindset around that particular um effort to secure the wires uh that, that could apply to security today, right? <laughs> oh, it still does. Absolutely. And so, you know, we have about uh, four minutes before the break, but I want to get started with 
just first figuring out who came up with the idea of Elizabeth Friedman. Because like I mentioned in the intro, I bet a lot of people don't recognize that name, but she was so important uh, in history. She, yeah, she played a huge part in really the birth of um, cryptography and cryptanalysis. And actually she and her husband coined the term cryptanalysis, but we'll, we'll get more into that in a minute. But I guess you'd answer your question um, a committee. We have a committee at Security World that works on the theme, and somebody on the committee had heard about Elizabeth Smith Friedman's life. And so what happens is you bring ideas to the table and say, well, this would be a great theme for us. And wouldn't you know it, um, we started taking a look at her life and all that she had accomplished, including reading a book that came out recently. It's called The Woman Who Smashed Codes. Mm. And in that book, it it, it reads like a cloak and dagger novel. Like you can't put it down. I, I'm, I'm actually reading through it right now. It's been going around the office. I finally have my hands on it, and it is just unbelievable. But really, what we found a couple of things. One is we chose her because she has not received the recognition she deserved mm-hmm. until now. Um, she was truly a pioneer in cryptography, and she has natural talent for decryption. Um, to become, you know, the letter to become one of the, the preeminent code breakers in U.S. history. And so when we looked at that and then we look at InfoSec, you know, cybersecurity's dramatic need, desperate need for more diversity in the workforce, more women to be a part of InfoSec. Um, you know, looking back at all that she had accomplished could inspire other women going forward. And so we just thought this was the right theme for 2019. And, and the official name, by the way, Rebecca, not mm-hmm. that you care, but I like it. I like it. It has a ring to it. It says that our official theme is knowledge is power. The remarkable life of codebreaker Elizabeth Smith Friedman. And her life was remarkable. So that's how we that's how we got to the theme this year. Oh, I love that. Knowledge is power. And you know what else I like about your events? You you mentioned in 2011, the first one, you uh, those events, you guys give out the coasters as takeaways <laughs> and you have other things. But I still have my coasters from 2011. And, and so, you know, I think when I talk about the awareness that I do with my tips each month, why I think those coasters, those those do a lot of benefit for awareness, too, because I still think about that whenever I uh, am drinking my tea and see the coaster there. So thank you for, for those. Um, fantastic. And we do. We have the coasters with Elizabeth Smith Meet Freedom and Story for 2019. So you can get those in Kansas City this year. <laughs> yes, I will add that to my collection. Well, right now I have to uh, take a quick break and we're going to hear from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. I'm speaking today with Bruce Sussman about Elizabeth Friedman and her contributions to cryptography and code breaking, which we'll get into in much more detail after the break. I'm your host, Rebecca Harrell the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show as well as show topic suggestions. Just use my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com and you can also go through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with Bruce Sussman about Elizabeth Friedman and her contributions to cryptography and also to code breaking. So we're going to just now get into the life of Elizabeth Friedman. So, Bruce, can you tell us something about Miss Friedman's life, like where she grew up and how she got into cryptography? Uh, sure, Rebecca, happy to. And, you know, her her upbringing was not necessarily unremarkable. She was a farm girl, right? She, um, she grew up, uh, was born in 1892 in Huntington, Indiana. If you look at the map, it's not far from Fort Wayne. It's a little more than an hour's drive, I think, from Indianapolis off to the north and east from there. And, uh, you know, her family was a peace-loving Quaker farming family. She decided to attend college, and she did, and she studied English and literature, and she became a teacher, right? Which uh, back in, uh, you know, 19 or early 1900s, was maybe 1915, something like that. She was a teacher, and, you know, in that day and age, most women who went to college became teachers or nurses, right? Those were the largely workforce options available, but that is where she decided to make a change. Now, this, I think, has a nice parallel to modern-day millennials, as we talk about often, but what did she decide to do? She thought being a teacher was too boring, she was tired of living the country life, and she decided she's moving the big city of Chicago to, in her words, look for something more unusual to do. Isn't that a funny term? It is. <laughs> but isn't that what kids do? They move to the big city to look for adventure. 
Yeah, well, kind of. I mean, I grew up on a farm and in farming and everything else, and I started out taught too. So as you're talking about this, I think it's it parallels so many other women's lives in many ways. It certainly does mine, at least in that beginning part that you're right. uh, starting out with. Well, so she got there to do something more unusual. What are some of the major major uh, successes and accomplishments that she did doing doing these unusual other things well yes and it's how she made that transition that that this was one of the first things that captivated me and Mm -hmm. it's written about in that book the woman who smashed codes and so just to to kind of paraphrase what happened she Mm -hmm. was at a library in chicago remember she'd quit her teaching job she'd moved there and she was extremely fascinated with shakespeare uh, William mm. Shakespeare's um, plays and works. And what she was even more fascinated by is what was called at the time, and, and I haven't heard much about this in years, but the Baconian Shakespeare controversy. And this was a controversy where there were many people who believed William Shakespeare did not write his plays. It was actually mm-hmm. the work of Sir Francis Bacon. Yes. So you've probably heard about this. You're familiar mm-hmm. So what happens? She's, she goes to this library in Chicago, and I know there's no way you could do this now, but this was in 1916. She goes to the library there in Chicago where she knows one of the first folios or printings of Shakespeare's work is available for review. She goes in, talks to the librarian, and they let her into the room where she can firsthand look at the work of Shakespeare, the very first publishing from 1623. Can you imagine doing wow. that? I'm just putting get behind glass and like lasers now, right? Exactly. <laughs> so here she is looking through this, and she was later as saying, this gave me the same feeling as an archaeologist has when he suddenly realizes he has discovered a tomb of a great pharaoh. So that gives us some insight into her mindset. Now, while she's there, she must have had such a look of wonder on her face. The librarian comes to her and says, you know, they had a conversation over her fascination and said, there's actually a man who comes in here as well all the time to look at this book. And he needs help deciphering if there are secret messages in there or clues that, in fact, it was written by Sir Francis Bacon and not written by Shakespeare. Would you like to meet him? Oh, she says, well, sure. I mean, literally within an hour, here he comes getting dropped off by his limousine to meet with her. And it turns out this guy was um, uh, an eccentric, very wealthy individual who ran and what you might call some sort of laboratory, but they they came to be known as cipher labs. Mm. And eventually she was recruited uh, to work at this cipher lab, and this was in kind of rural Illinois, and there were a, he had a bunch of really smart people like Elizabeth working on trying to decipher different things, secret codes, hidden messages. I mean, this would be like if you had millions to spend, Rebecca, and you just decided mm-hmm. you're going to do all crazy analysis and hire teams to do it just because you want to. You know what I mean? Yes. And so that's that's. I mean, that's fascinating to me. That's how she yeah. got into this. So what happens while she is there, not only did she end up meeting her husband, William Friedman, but the other thing is while she's there, those two teamed up. And in later 1916, 
or it could have been early 1917. I think it was late 1916, actually, for this part. Scotland Yard was referred by the Department of Justice to this particular lab, the um, cipher labs there. And they had a bunch of intercepted letters from the Germans. And they were written in code, and they didn't know what they said. And they were worried that there was some sort of attack coming towards Europe. This is pre-World War One, mm-hmm. And Elizabeth Smith Friedman worked with her uh, co-worker at the time, uh, who was going to be her husband. They worked together, and they deciphered the letters. And what they revealed that Germany was helping fund activists in New York who were able to ship guns and bombs other places in the world to kind of get set up for um, battle. And the amazing thing to me is there was a trial then. There were charges as a result of the secrets being known. And at the trial, one of the men on trial was shot and killed because um, he was yelled at somebody stood up in the courtroom, called him a traitor and shot and killed him. And the persons did that because they were sure this person had shared the secrets of this criminal operation. But guess what? They hadn't shared the secrets. What happened was Elizabeth Smith Friedman had revealed the secrets by breaking the secret codes and Nobody knew that could be done at the time, but she had done it. And that's how she initially got into this. Isn't that amazing? That That is absolutely amazing. And I'm wondering if she was in that courtroom, I wonder if she was thinking, holy cow, are they going to shoot me next? But they didn't even know about it then, that she yeah, was the one. <laughs> that's right. And actually, this book covers the time that, you know, it wasn't her who got to go it was actually her husband-to-be because they chose a man who was seen as more credible back in the day. So she had to obviously confront that, but here she was the one who had done it equally as much, if not more, of the work um, to solve the case. But she, she was very modest in every regard and never really you know, bragged about her accomplishments as fantastic they were but yeah there's, there's no doubt about that they, they nobody had any idea this was going on so anyway fast forward then here's world war one comes along now and the labs where she was working were kind of official unofficially annexed by the military um, by the um, state department by the army which was called the war department at the time the navy the department of justice basically she did along of the other team members at this lab, they, they did all of the uh, cryptanalysis, all of the code breaking that the United States was able to do for the first eight months of World War One. There was nobody else anywhere else within government to do what she was able to do. And I think that is just so fascinating to me. And in the end, she and her husband ended up co-writing entire code breaking manuals they helped train and inform ciphers, people who could break these codes um, all, all around uh, the world, um, but, but in particular, you know, the United States. And mm-hmm. it was just really fascinating to me how they could break some of these things down. And I, I, I just want to read you just one little section from this book because sure. I'm, I'm looking at a quote. This is, this is one of the ways they broke a cipher. Here, here was the message was communicated like this. The top line read like this. 38425, there's a space, 24736, there was a space, 47575, there was a space, 93826. That 
just the top line, and then there are a bunch of numbers with dashes and things that go down below. Mm-hmm. I, I would look at this and have no clue on what this means, but Elizabeth was able to actually create block codes and decipher that there was some sort of text that was being used as a key. They're, they're using some sort of book. They've translated it into numbers and then translating that. I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing. I'm not even explaining it well because I'm so confused about it, but they're able to turn this into actually words that were readable and knowable and actionable. And isn't that fascinating? It, it's absolutely fascinating, especially since she did not come from a mathematics background. She didn't come from, you know, your your tr- traditional STEM background. She was what, an English? You said she yes. was. So I wonder if that contributed to her understanding the fact that she knew about, you know, English and writing and structure of words and so on. Maybe she looked at that and saw the similarities there. That's just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. It is, it is fascinating to me, and her skill set continued to be used. So after World War I is done, in the 1920s, she actually was hired to create uh, a code-cracking unit for the U.S. Coast Guard. And I don't know if you remember what was happening in the 1920s in uh, the United States, but there was prohibition going on. Alcohol mm. was banned. Mm-hmm. Well, we all know what happens when you ban something, right? There are people who are going to find a way to sell it and move it. Mm -hmm. And what did the Coast Guards, one of their primary roles at that point, was to look for banned shipments of alcohol that were being shipped offshore or imported from other parts of the world. So she decrypted radio messages used by these international liquor smugglers who were hiding booze, and she helped them discover um, hidden things and shipments of jewelry, perfume, even pinto beans. And keep in mind, we didn't have, like, tracking dogs and things like that. There was no the modern technology there was no scanning technology to see what's inside containers the Mm -hmm. only way these things were detected is because she led the team that broke the code and caught their communications on how they were smuggling alcohol wow that's just so amazing i mean why hasn't there been a major movie about her life yet (laughs) you know what i it's got to be coming don't you think rebecca I would think so. There needs to be. That that is just so fascinating. Well, think about all she did. I mean, what do you how do you think history might have been changed if she hadn't made her contributions? I mean, maybe people would have figured this out later on or maybe some of this would never have been figured out. Well, that's a great question and I I suppose either option is possible. I also think that there is a a third option. And that is that we might have figured it out later. I'm, I'm guessing somebody would have. However, um, you know, because, uh, right, uh, necessity is the motherhood of invention. I mean, obviously, you need to crack these codes somehow because you can't mm-hmm. have the enemy always communicating in secret. But I would also say the third option would be is that life might be different for all of us. And the reason I say that is she went on to crack codes during World War II. And she thought that she was intercepting codes from people who were smuggling things, but it turned out to be Nazi spies that were spreading out around the globe. And what happened is Nazi spies were sent out from Germany, you know, by Hitler's organization. And if the spy arrived safely at their destination, uh, they had a radio and they had an antenna and they would do their best to communicate back 
to the motherland because radio signals can go very far under certain atmospheric conditions. In fact, just a little meteorology side note mm-hmm. um, is that at night, a certain layer of the atmosphere basically thins out or, or vanishes, and that layer absorbs radio waves. So once that, that layer is gone at night, signals from radios can travel much, much further than, than during the day. <clears throat> so anyway, they were able to, to transmit as these Nazi Germany spies spread across North America, Mexico, Central America, and South America. They were transmitting back to the homeland. Well, anyway, so she was monitoring for something else that the Treasury Department uh, had her um, watching for, some embargo-related things trying to break codes there and she came across these uh, messages and they turned out they were in German and Mm. they were containing sensitive information about the routes of the U.S. and British ships and the capacities of U.S. factories during World War II and she also was able to decipher and find the fixes or where these signals were originating from and it turns out they were coming from unknown radio stations that had been set up by the Nazi spies in Mexico, South America, and the United States. And she was able, with that work, was able to bring down an entire network of 50 Nazi Germany spies. Now, what if she hadn't been able to do that? What if her skills hadn't been employed in World War II? How would things have gone differently in that war you know i think it's a question worth asking and i again going back to your point about the movie i mean there's got to be one sooner or later because that just blows my mind oh yeah is my mind still being blown after you are talking about that because i'm thinking um just think how different how many lives might have been lost um as a result of her not being able to do that i mean and and I really, how you described the radio frequency, too, that is just fascinating to me as well. And it explains a lot. As a little girl in rural Missouri, I noticed then that I could get radio stations at nighttime when I had my radio on in my room that I couldn't get during the day. And that's probably why. (laughs) Oh, that is exactly why. And I, I remember doing the same thing, going into my parents' car. You know, my dad's uh, or my mom's little Buick there, and you turn it on the AM radio, and you could get, you're like, they're talking about New York City. How can this, how can we be getting the signal? You know, it was fascinating to do that, yes. So, everything in the past definitely is still applicable today, and her curiosity, you know, that's a common theme to me, too, as you're describing this. Probably one of her greatest strengths might have been her curiosity and ability to dig into the getting the answers to why <laughs> that she probably absolutely. Oh, yeah, I love. I, I think you're right. That is just so fascinating. Well, is there anything surprising about her life? I mean, everything you've said is surprising <laughs> yeah. as far as it goes now. But is there anything beyond, you know, what she did with code breaking or cryptography that would be surprising to any of us? Well, Maybe the- I, I, I think, you know, what I think is interesting to me and I um, is that she in interviews, she did follow up interviews um, with the National Security Agency they have a museum, and that's, you know, the, the quote-unquote, the most sort of agency, right, in, in, in the U.S. government. And mm-hmm. they're in charge of, they have teams now that uh, do what Elizabeth Smith Friedman did, right? I mean, they listen mm-hmm. to 
and they tried to cipher and crack codes, et cetera, et cetera. And what was interesting to me is that she, uh, during the interview with the NSA Museum, and I think this was done in the 1960s, I want to say, it was, it's detailed in the book, but um, she, she basically described everything that happened to her as just, she kind of, by accident, got into each of these things. And I love that viewpoint because what it, what it tells me is it doesn't really matter where you are right now in your career or your life path. You still have an opportunity based on the passions you have and the unique insights that you bring as a human being to do something really unusual, as she said, and, and make a bigger impact. And you never know when that opportunity is going to happen. So just keep your eyes open. And I think that's one of the surprising overarching themes that I see coming from her life. Oh, gosh, yes. And, and just look at today with all of our new and emerging technologies too i mean that's kind of how i got into to privacy work because nobody else wanted to do something that had never been done before so it's like oh that's fun let's let's figure out what'll happen and just think about artificial intelligence and big data analytics and all those things that of course um that you talk about now so so often in your uh, secure world events i mean it's there's just so much opportunity out there people shouldn't shouldn't think that they can't get into this field just because they don't have a computer science degree or a math degree or something else from STEM, right? No, you're right. And and that is such a great point, Rebecca. And thinking, you just kind of triggered something for me, thinking about all of the security and privacy leaders that I've interviewed at our Secure World conferences. And uh, there is a theme that the cybersecurity, privacy, um, risk, all of these different areas of, of work, they need people from all different backgrounds because they, mm-hmm. I've had more than one chief information security officer say, I don't want people who just come from a cybersecurity background. I want people who come from a different part of the business or who come from outside of cybersecurity altogether who have a different way of looking at the problem and thinking about it. Because guess what? The way we think about security is not necessarily the way hackers or outsiders, people who are looking at us as a target, are thinking about security. So the more diversity I have in thought on my team, the more secure we're going to be. And that's that's why, yeah, you really should, uh, you know, don't say no if you're not experiencing cybersecurity. There's still an opportunity to go after it. Yeah, for sure. Yes, and especially like from the communications standpoint, that's something where I found throughout all of my uh, adult career is that so many times um, lack of just good speaking or writing communication skills mixed with tech is the downfall or maybe holds people back in their career because oftentimes they focus so much on just knowing the technicalities. They don't realize that you have to be able to use good communication skills to explain these things to the non-tech people that they're doing the work for. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things that I, that's it. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that I speak about um, and when I, when I deliver a keynote or a presentation, on you know, move your own objectives forward is is your own career, and one yes. of the things that you have to do if you work, and it doesn't really matter what your role is, but in this day and age, think about all the communication that goes on from social media. You know, we're bombarded by 
YouTube and emails and everything else. So you need to let people know what you are doing and why it's relevant. I'm not talking about bragging, but for example, what's the most wasted moment of the day um, in, in, in the corporate office and the most wasted opportunity? And I would say uh, one of the things is, is the idea that when you say hi to somebody, how's it going? Oh, fine. Happy Thursday. Yeah, happy Thursday. Almost the weekend. Yep, it's almost the weekend. And then you both go your separate ways. Mm-hmm. Instead, what if you said, hey, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. I'm working on this excellent implementation or this really neat project, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to make things a lot better in our organization. Just what if you just said that, and then went on with your day? And every time you did that, you were spreading the word that you are a go-getter and making a difference without bragging. You're just giving them a five-second snippet into your world, and I think that's a missed opportunity all related to communication. Oh, I wholly agree with you there. When I was uh, at Principal Financial Group through the 1990s, I used to get to work um, about a quarter till six in the morning. Um, I did flex time and I just love getting in early before the calls. But guess who else came in really early was the CEO. He He was big on running and he would run to work. And it gave me the opportunity to oftentimes we get there at the same time in the elevator. And you're right. It's it's a good opportunity to, to not just make a small talk, but to start saying, oh, did you know about this particular new thing that we need to be aware of in the company? Or uh, how's things going with your new laptop they just you know gave to you? Did you realize this or that? So I think what you're doing is so good. So, so important, Bruce. And, and you know, we're at the end of our uh, time here, but do you have one last uh, thought to leave with our listeners today, either about Elizabeth Friedman or anything else that we've been talking about today? Well, if not, why well, I sure appreciate uh, you being on the show today, Bruce. And-, and I am back. I'm back. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened. I just vanished. I'm sorry. That's fine. I was just going to say, if you have one parting thought for our listeners that you want to pass along, uh, now's a great time to do it. Okay, yes, absolutely. Well, I would just say this. I, I would highly, if, if you're curious about this woman's life and about the difference that Elizabeth Smith Friedman made for really all of us because of her involvement, um, I highly recommend uh, the book, The Woman Who Smashed Codes. Uh, it's by Jason Fagoni, and um, I, I think it also highlights a lot of what you talk about, Rebecca, on your podcast on a regular basis, and I'll just read you the one three-sentence paragraph here as a kind of a closing thought. Okay. And this is what he said in his author note right up front. He said, all democracies ride the line between security and transparency, secrecy and disclosure. What do people have a right to know? What must stay secret and why? The Freedmans, including Elizabeth, live these tensions more deeply than most. And I think that pretty much sums up what we're still struggling with today, right? Yes, yes. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Bruce. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much, Rebecca, and look forward to seeing you at uh, some of the uh, 17 Secure World conferences around the country. Yes, definitely in May in Kansas City. So, uh 
Today, I've been speaking with Bruce Sussman about Elizabeth Friedman and her many contributions to cryptography and code breaking. And also, we've been speaking about Secure World Expo events. Please send feedback about the show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Well, let me know. You can send your messages to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. And please tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled time, you will always be listening uh, be able to listen to all the past recordings and you can find the recordings of all my past shows on all those apps that you might be using uh, also at the voiceamerica.com business channel website i urge you all to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities go to your job and do your daily work or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured or potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.